Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next 30 minutes, we're going to be taking an in-depth look on three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. Uh, for those of you that are new to the Roundup, we take our themes for our questions each week from the news stories that we gather and publish in our newsletter that comes out Monday mornings called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And that includes both top stories in social media and international education that are worth, uh, I think, your time and energy in reading. Uh, if you're looking for a quick, concise digest of those that uh, those stories that can impact our industry. And then on Wednesdays here at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, we take a live look at uh, so these, some of these three of these themes each week and go in-depth to provide our our, uh, our in-depth look into those, uh, how those issues can impact what you do in your offices in international education. So uh, if you're looking for how to subscribe to that newsletter to get that as part of your regular international edification each week, go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe and you can find and archive all of our newsletters over the past two years. Uh, three years now, actually, as well as uh, a way to subscribe to that newsletter. I'm dropping the link to the most recent edition of the newsletter into the comments section on the Facebook events page for this at SMIE Consulting. Uh, and that uh, is where most of our audience will get our information related to uh, what we cover here on Wednesdays. So uh, what we'll do is we'll I'll roll out first our three questions we're going to be covering today, and then we'll get into question one in just a minute. First up, what do admissions leaders think today in the fall of 2021 related to international education? And some of the themes are very much domestic focused, but for I pull out uh, some of the elements that impact directly what we do in international education. Second question, how important are student outcomes? And finally, what matters in testing for international students? And we're going to cover not only standardized testing for um, undergraduate and graduate, we're going to talk more broadly about testing and including English language proficiency testing and some of the trends we're seeing developing. So let's get right into it with question number one. What do admission leaders think? And this is all coming from an, uh, a recent survey, uh, an annual survey of uh, uh, missions leaders, and this one is uh, sponsored by Inside Higher Ed. Uh, they do this every year, and they had 206 admissions officials uh, respond to this year's uh, survey. And we're, this is from earlier in uh, for the data from this fall, and they are asked a range of questions that um, apply mostly to domestic admissions concerns, but we'll touch on what we think are some of the high-level answers and responses we're hearing from admissions leaders uh, in this Inside Higher Ed survey. Uh, most of the domestic-focused ones were related to their May 1 uh, de de deadline for uh, enrollment deposits, which is the standard one in the United States uh, for, uh, class for universities to have students who intend to come in the fall pay their, pay their enrollment deposits, whatever that may be. And the, uh, the general gist of it, most office, most uh, only I think 40 percent had uh, had their classes full uh, by May 1st, or their, had their targets hit by May 1st. So most were still searching for uh, filling their their classes long after that uh, traditional May 1st deadline. 
that uh, the, clo the most campuses were saying their the closure campus closures were physically not being able to have host visitors and that type of thing in the last academic year, saying that hurt efforts to recruit enough students. Uh, and what did say that the interest in videos and online recruiting is expected to continue throughout this current uh, recruitment cycle for twenty for the fall of twenty twenty two. So what, uh, about a third are saying that the pandemic did not change who they admitted, uh, to whom they admitted. 37% said it changed whom they admitted, but in a minor way. 95% uh, of campuses use test optional or test blind admissions policies this year. And we'll get to the impact of that a little bit later on in our third question of the day. And there are some, it, most, are gonna, uh, most of this is specifically uh, delineated towards responses to for domestic admissions standards, uh, but there are some that are very specific to internationals, uh, whom they admitted. Uh, we, most private colleges were expecting more undergraduates uh, for fall uh, fall 2021 enrollment. 33% were expecting more on the public level at the undergrad side. About the same, 18% for privates, 24% for publics. Uh, fewer undergraduates were expected at 27% of privates, 43% of publics. So uh, that's uh, kind of all over the board, really, uh, but uh, in terms of what the expectations are and probably not unlike most other years. But uh, where it comes down to the test optional admissions, this is where we see uh, last week, the College Board reported uh, last week, about 1.5 million students in the high school class of 2021 took the SAT at least once. And that's down 700,000 from the class of 2020. And the Common App reported that only 43% of students had submitted SAT or ACT scores, down from 77% the previous year. So of the colleges that responded to the survey, 52% had changed their policies to become test optional or test blind this year. 44% were test optional before the pandemic. And again, this is a, a microcosm. This is 206 uh, responding admissions officers. So uh, the general um, balance in terms of where universities fell uh, this year is probably about 75% of U.S. colleges were test optional in one way or another. Uh, so that's... Uh, these numbers are actually a little bit higher, and probably these the ones that responded were already, uh, as this one says, 44% were already test optional uh, before the pandemic. Uh, those that, who were newly test optional or test blind said uh, they saw increases, about 47% saw increases in applications from uh, traditional minority groups, uh, and 55% say they admitted more uh, from those same groups. and. 42% saw an increase in the percentage of students who needed aid to enroll. So fairly, fairly significant. Uh, for those that had made the change uh, related to how test optional impacted admissions processes, about a quarter said the experience was very positive, 34% somewhat positive, 32% neutral, 9% said somewhat negative, 1% very negative. So 10% were in the negative camp in terms of the impact of test optional on their admissions policies. Uh, strong support though for those that did change to staying that way. 59% strongly supported staying that way, 20% somewhat supported, only 13% were opposed to remaining test optional post-pandemic. 
So most predicted tough times ahead for the uh, te major testing organizations, SAT and ACT, for undergraduate admissions. Uh, so that says, uh, says a lot, I think, and no surprise there really. I do want to get into the undergrad recruitment side and talk specifically about uh, this survey related to uh, international. Uh, with a focus on undergrad recruitment, uh, the questions were asked, what group of students will be likely targets for increased efforts in the next year? Uh, international students were considered, 52% of those who responded said international students will get increased focus of attention in recruitment efforts in the coming year. So that's encouraging uh, to see that larger percentage, the majority saying of this small group, saying that there would be an increased focus on international recruitment. So what do these, uh, what do these stories tell me? Uh, well, one thing, test optional is huge and uh, had a huge impact in, in terms of admissions. Um, having done application reading for um, a, an institution that went test optional uh, in the past two years, uh, seeing the impact on the uh, admissions decisions made and how that increased their, uh, their minority admit, admit rate uh, as well as enrollments this past fall. I think there's longer term positives to be gained by staying this way than there would be for going back to a testing uh, a required testing environment. So I think the uh, the trend of test optional or becoming test blind as the University of California system is going to become uh, in the next uh, two to three years, that is something that I think will uh, will be very much the rule rather than the exception. Uh, I can see very much so Ivy Leagues going back to the testing because that's a crutch that they they use uh, to uh, help whittle their, down their uh, their their applicant pool each year. Uh, I think what we saw this year is their admit rates hit all-time lows uh, into the low single digits uh, for for many of the Ivies and and more prestigious institutions in the U.S. Uh, that is going to be something I think they're going to want to go back to uh, using test, uh, testing because that will, uh, the, I think they'll see the benefits though in the, in the incoming class, they probably will have admitted and enrolled more, um, more students, uh, diverse student bodies than perhaps they, and they already had more diverse student bodies than most of the rest of the campuses in the United States, but uh, we'll see where that goes long term. But I think the shift in focus uh, post-pandemic into this next year, we're still going to be in the midst of it, really, as we're dealing with vaccination and Delta variants and who knows what else is going to come down the road in the next uh, few months. But uh, there's still going to be lingering impacts of the pandemic. And I think uh, one of the more positive outcomes will be to remain test optional. Uh, and the impact on international students certainly is uh, a, a positive one in that um, the, we'll talk more about the test optional pit at the end uh, of, the, of the session today, but you see clearly that uh, international students benefit from uh, schools that, being, uh, that have gone test optional and they're actually gonna be uh, an increased focus of the majority of these uh, mission leaders that were surveyed in the past year. Uh, in terms of efforts that they're going to be extending to recruit internationally, so we'll keep our uh, fingers post uh, on on this uh, on this topic as as we get move along. But we'll go shift net gears now and talk about the other end of the college admissions spectrum, uh, the importance of outcomes, student outcomes in uh, the experiences of uh, international students. Uh, and we're going to talk about that group in particular. Uh, we're referring, uh, when we talk about outcomes, we're talking about employability in terms of grad, uh, job placement, in terms of salary, all of these things are 
at or near the top of every uh, survey that's been done. Uh, and we recently had an ACE survey came, that uh, report that came out over the summer that also reflected uh, employability and outcomes as the top determining factor now of where students will apply and what in terms of factors that they're going to consider in terms of their before they make their final decisions. And to that end, what I've done, uh, as you know, uh, those who, who follow the Roundup and follow what I've been doing uh, for my business uh, for SMIE Consulting, I do uh, a series of articles for IDP Connect. Uh, that uh, in the past year we've done the six P's of strategic international enrollment management as a series, and uh, we talk about um, we talk about messaging uh, quite a bit in that six P's. Uh, what I've turned to now for my next series is probably a series of about four to five uh, articles over the next uh, ten months. We're going to be alternating between. Uh, interviews with international ed leaders, as well as this new series called Content Priorities Revisited, CPR. Uh, it's a CPR series that is focused on international student messaging and the different topics that uh, institutions can and should be prioritizing or taking a deeper dive into uh, throughout their comm flows and their messaging uh, to international audiences. So the first one out is uh, CPR series, International Student Messaging, Number one, outcomes. And in part one of this series, uh, I examine uh, how, com how your communication flow addresses this topic of outcomes and where you do it in the process. Uh, that's a larger question, but uh, and not one I focus on in the, in the article, but really talking about why outcomes is so relevant to international students, particularly at the undergrad level, because we're also de dealing with their parents who are largely paying those bills. Uh, that uh, most, most now will admit that there needs to be some, that, or at least who, those, will admit that those who are serious about internationalizing and uh, uh, doing international student recruitment uh, well, you need to differentiate your messaging to students who live abroad and parents who live abroad, uh, that, as opposed to what uh, the typical 17-year-old in an American high school needs to hear or, and their parents. But the, the, what really does resonate amongst all groups is, for our undergraduate audiences, is what is the outcome of this coming to, making the decision to come to your institution? Uh, what are they going to get besides the degree, besides the paper, besides the diploma that indicates what they've done and what they're, they've been taught and uh, 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 allowed to receive a degree in? What matters most and it is those outcomes it is okay what kind of job am i going to get am i going to be working within six months of uh, graduation am i going to be able to uh, get admitted to the graduate schools that i'm uh, i'm looking to uh, to attend what is my future going to look like when i'm done with this university degree and that's a question that parents students frankly at the undergrad level are thinking more and more about uh, because of increased costs uh, because of the, uh, the reality of, for international audiences in particular, having to move halfway around the world to pursue a degree, you want to know, uh, well, is this degree going to translate to a job back home? Is it going to allow entry into a graduate program wherever I may be choosing? Is it going to, if I'm looking to stay in the U.S. and gain some practical work experience, is this going to allow me to work um, and achieve employment in the U.S.? 
And there are several, there's a lot of moving parts, obviously, in, in that decision for an international uh, student. Obviously, depending on the program that they go into, they may have anywhere from one to three years of work experience that they're eligible for as part of the, their major that they're studying. Uh, STEM students get up to three years per degree level that they achieve uh, from bachelor's, master's to doctoral level. Uh, whereas if you're in a non-STEM program, you just get a year per degree level. But that work experience opportunity matters. So talking about, uh, this goes back to what I mentioned, I've mentioned in the 6P series about perspective, infusing your messaging with your perspective on why the U.S., not just your institution, but why the U.S. is a better destination than other, other, other countries that they, these students might also be applying to. You want to focus on the employability piece, on the access to um, work experience, one from one to three years in your field of study, and be able to talk about that in your communication messaging to prospective students. Uh, you want to, you certainly want to know what students are 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 feeling and parents are feeling about how important this issue is, uh, getting jobs in their field. Now, what I see is probably one of the biggest drawbacks is most institutions don't track international student outcomes. They may have general university-wide, uh, six months, within six months of graduation, those that are applying for jobs get, those, get a job in their field of study. Uh, or the other issue of, of getting a job or not get, uh, applying and being admitted to graduate schools. So there will be two or three groups, three groups primarily going to be talking about. Uh, students that are looking to stay in the country and work after graduation use their OPT time. You have students that are looking to uh, graduate and go back to their home countries to hopefully or third countries to get a job. And you have uh, a group that are looking to go on for further studies, particularly if they're starting at the bachelor's degree level, looking to go on for a master's or a doctoral program. And being able to track those specific rates and knowing what those are. This requires some work uh, because the likelihood is your your uh, career services, professional development office, whatever it may be called at your institution, doesn't track this information for, specifically for international students. And uh, it's, it's, it's often the case, this is uh, the same for graduation rates, retention rates, all of that. You don't typically see international students tracked separately for these to, in terms of how they hit those marks. But it's important to get to that point when you can dis, uh, when you can have data that supports what you're trying to say that yes, our students get jobs, yes, our students get accepted into the, uh, the best grad schools, are you really tracking that? Uh, and this is something you wanna be uh, working with your ISSS office in particular uh, on the employment data side because you certainly, uh, you want to know and they can, they can see uh, from recent graduates how many have been approved for uh, OPT, uh, you can also get because uh, they have to update their uh, their rec student records with uh, their employer data. That's a way to capture that data. We talk about that in the article here. Uh, there's there's ways that you can build into the process uh, that say for example if you don't have anything yet what you can do is work with your career services office and we, I'm doing this with at least one of my client universities right now is getting them to um, track for the, all the employers that come to campus for job fairs internship fairs whatever it might be to ask the questions will your what does your company hire uh, international students who have a work eligibility for uh, either 
CPT as, a, as an undergraduate student or OPT as a, as a graduate student after they've graduated. So asking those questions on the signups for employers who are coming to job fairs or interviews or whatever it might be. So capturing some of that data, uh, and that's now a part of two of, two of my uh, campuses that I'm working with, part of their uh, career services process to identify what these needs are, uh, what, what of the institutions that come to, come to, that come to campus employ, will employ and have jobs that are now available to international students. One of the ways to do that is to uh, once you have that, that database built of employers that are accepting uh, international students, you're also, when you're getting job postings from these employers, uh, having indications on there, uh, international students are eligible to apply for these. Uh, that is something you want to have tracked as well, that uh, we have so many job openings that international students can apply for. And eventually build to the point where you tr know either working with your OISSS office or tracking that through career services, however that gets done, where when, when international students get placed into these jobs, uh, that there's some sort of record created, that, created for that. And once those records are kept uh, regularly, then you can hopefully reconnect with some of these students for uh, testimonials about employability that you, uh, that you can use in the, on the front end of the process, in the recruitment side, to say, hey, oh, we've had recent students, the anecdotal stories that you always want to have in your back pocket to share with prospective student audiences about the international student who came, graduated, got employed, did an internship while they were, before they finished, and then got employed uh, right after graduation in their field of study. Those are the things that are what every international recruitment office wants to have in their back pocket when they're talking to uh, students and parents and be able to share those uh, with your future student, student audiences and particularly parents that are concerned about outcomes. So that's just mission critical, I think, moving forward when you, when you talk about anticipating the needs of your intended students and their parents uh, and hoping to address those questions. So if, you're, if you have mechanisms in place on your campus now to, uh, to, to cater to those needs uh, in terms of having data, having the anecdotal stories that then you can re repurpose for recruitment-related uh, messaging, if you're doing that, then you're certainly uh, with the times. Uh, if not, you're, you're certainly going to be behind in this, in this particular chase. But it's all about conveying your value and why that parent, that student should commit their, the next four years of their life for undergraduate studies and all the money that's going to be involved to uh, educate that student on your campus. Uh, you, you think about it, it's uh, showing value and this, this, I often have it compared to uh, buying a car uh, is, uh, or buying a house even, uh, where a parent is going to commit to a university education that may cost them all things considered $150,000 to $250,000 or more for a four-year education when you talk about tuition, room and board fees, health insurance, all of the expenses they're going to incur. So if you, if you, if you want to make the case to a prospective student and their family that this is how much it's going to cost, because if you're not doing the math for them, they're certainly doing it in their heads. They have to show a year's funding to get their initial I-20s, but they're thinking four years of, of this. Is this worth the cost, the chance to get a job or get into grad school, get a get scholarship or fellowships or assistantships for further study, whatever it might be, is that cost worth the outcome? 
uh, in terms of not just a diploma, because everybody can say that you're going to graduate with a diploma. That means a hill of beans if you can't prove that those diplomas lead to jobs or further graduate study, whatever it might be. So data will help support your case. And when you're trying to convince a family sight unseen, if they've never visited your campus, as we've seen in the pandemic, that's certainly not happening. Uh, international students are not visiting. They typically weren't doing that before they enrolled for study, unless they're transferring from within the United States, are super wealthy to begin with. So you, you see what happens in, in the course of the recruitment cycle is you see that those institutions that do a good job of connecting the dots and saying not just how great an experience you're going to have while you're on our campus, but this, job, this experience is going to help prepare you best for the career or further study that you're looking to do in your field. And that's something that when you can connect the dots throughout that process, not just have them be able to paint a picture for them of how it's going to be for them as a student and be for them to be able to envision themselves on your campus, that's great, but you also got to help them see what that future might look like, that it's going to be worth the time and investment that their parents are about to make to come to your campus. So when you have that data, those stories that can support your case when it comes to those outcomes, you're ahead of the game and right, uh, right, and certainly will be ahead of the competition when it comes to making your case to your prospective student audiences. So outcomes matter most. Uh, more than anything else that you do, if you can get the outcomes piece right, a lot of the other things that might not be ideal uh, in terms of the perfect uh, scenario for an international student on your campus, that can be made uh, tolerable uh, in terms of uh, the journey that they're, they're going to be on if they can see that brass ring at the end of the end of the process. So outcomes absolutely matter, and the more you focus on that in your messaging, uh, as a result of what you're doing, and it's not, not just a one-off message about career services that exist, but sharing those success stories, tying them to even, if you can, eventually, to their major. Um, what international students who have come to your institution, graduated, what have they done with that degree? You want those stories in your back pocket that you can pull out and share. And these are the things, if they're supported by data on a, more, on a broader scale for your institution, not just all graduates, but specifically international graduates, what they, what the options are for them and what the success rates are for them, those outcomes translated well will mean success on the front end of the enrollment process. So absolutely focus on outcomes. Now, the final question, what matters in testing for international students? And when I say testing, we uh, a lot of times we're talking about uh, test optional, that's certainly been the theme over the last, uh, last two, couple, three years about the growing trend to, toward test optional amongst uh, U.S. colleges and universities. But we're also talking about testing in terms of uh, English proficiency uh, testing. And that, those are the two pieces of the testing world that impact international students the most. Um, specifically on test optional for these standardized tests, uh, if, for those that are NAFSA members, if you haven't uh, seen the webinar that they did a couple weeks ago uh, on the test optional movement and the implications and impact for international students. I uh, have to be a NAFSA member to actually watch this. I'm dropping the link in the comments section on the Facebook page for this event. Uh, but certainly um, there's a lot of literature out there, a lot of articles that we share regularly through our newsletter on test optional. But uh, certainly take a look at the webinar uh, if you have a chance, some really uh, in good insights in terms of how this movement has, uh, is developed and grown and is impacting international uh, admissions. 
So when it comes to that, uh, if you are test optional, that is certainly to your advantage. Uh, and you, when you look at uh, what the requirements are to apply to uh, U.S. colleges as opposed to U.K., Australian, Canadian institutions, you realize quite quickly as if you do this and have this perspective in doing what you do, and again, going back to my six Ps, that first P, perspective, perspective on what the rest of the world does, you realize quite quickly how complicated, how overcomplicated, frankly, our admissions processes are in the United States. And that goes for both undergraduate and graduate admissions. So the more you as an institution can simplify that and make it re relevant to them in terms of assessing them on the key areas of academic ability and English language ability, those are the two things that we're talking about that are really the, as well as funding their education, the, the, the key elements of whether you can admit a student or not. Uh, and the simpler your process becomes, the more attractive it becomes and makes all the um, makes the comparative uh, nature of international education these days when students are not just considering U.S. institutions, they're looking at British universities, or Canadian universities, Australian perhaps. So they're looking at uh, applying to numerous countries and they're looking for who's going to get them the best deal. Not only the best deal in terms of the time and energy spent and money spent by their parents, but what the outcomes will be and the process that they can go through to get where they need to be uh, to en enroll in your institution. So um, the extra applica the application fees, the uh, additional tests that are required, the letters of recommendation, the uh, essays that are required for uh, many different institutions, those are extra hurdles that students have to clear to come to your institution, whereas if looking at other countries, it's the UCAS application, UCAS application, maybe there's an essay in there, maybe not, recommendations at undergrad level, non-existent. So what are what are what are institutions making decisions on and are, how are you doing compared to your competitors not just in the u.s but abroad and you take that perspective on the academic achievement tests like an sat act which are tests that are not designed for international students they're designed for u.s students in u.s high schools in the united states learning american english not uh, the english that most of the rest of the world learns so when it comes to uh, act and act SAT and ACT, GRE, GMAT, uh, the, those standardized tests. In some field, you can't get around them in the United States for LSAT, for, for JDs, but there aren't a lot of international students applying there. Uh, the MCAT for medical school, the DAT for dental school, uh, PT, PTAT for physical, physical therapy, all of these things, um, pharma, pharmacy, graduate admissions test. All of them are, for graduate students, more common than undergrad. But you even look at some of the graduate programs in the U.S. that are dropping GRE, GMAT requirements. I think there's a lot to, lot to be said with simplifying our admissions processes when it comes to that academic achievement side. Now, on the flip side, when we talk about the English proficiency test, this is one thing that you can't get around. You have to document, if you're admitting a student into a degree program, you have to have... Uh, a proof that they have the ability to succeed on an English language level, not just an academic level, which you get from assessing their grade averages in their, in their uh, previous work, academic work. When you look at testing for English proficiency, you realize quite quickly that the pandemic, during the pandemic, the tests that have given students the online at-home option are the ones that really had seen, had seen the biggest growth. Uh, certainly Duolingo is an only online test, 
that can be done from anywhere. Uh, you've seen uh, slowly um, TOEFL, then IELTS, then PTE Academic also uh, offer at-home editions of their desks that now are widely, uh, widely recognized by the same colleges and universities that recognize the normal tests. Seeing that this is a value that we want to keep uh, keep this on at home edition because we don't know in the rest of the world pandemic still raging test centers are still closed in a lot of places so this impacts their ability to to apply to your institution if they can't demonstrate their English proficiency so having a flexible uh, being able to accept flexible testing for English proficiency is absolutely rock solid uh, essential to moving forward as uh, and uh, getting getting in front of international students and anticipating needs that they have uh, because of the availability of testing uh, in general terms around the world. So a couple articles in addition to the NAFSA web, web, webinar that I'm posting, one from the Pi News where educators uh, on the English language testing side are saying that these online versions are here to stay. So that's encouraging to hear these uh, professionals, both university and testing, saying the same thing on that front. And then there's the, more of a domestic take on this, the will to test in a test optional era. Now you certainly see this in a, on the domestic side where there's even, uh, when particularly at undergrad level, the SAT and ACT, the test optional piece, that you still have students that by hook or by crook do everything that they can because their parents have spent so much money on test prep, they still want to be able to take that SAT or ACT exam to help them get that leg up because uh, they think it still matters. Uh, in, in making a difference in their applications for, for selective institutions. And while that may be the case, uh, there's not, and, but test, schools have gone test optional. They, even though they don't have to, they still feel they need to uh, when the reality is they don't. Uh, and because they, they, don't, they, they doubt whether, potentially, they doubt whether universities are actually serious. Well, they really still want to see it, don't they? And there's some questions whether that, uh, that, that is actually still true at some more selective institution with that. If you submit it, it's still going to give you a leg up, uh, particularly if your scores are better. So we'll see how this plays out longer term. And certainly internationally, I think uh, there's still that culture of test moving, teaching to tests and test prep industry is huge in, around the world. We've seen what China's done recently with a lot of the uh, uh, tutoring pieces that, that impact test prep there. Uh, we'll see if this has a knock-on effect uh, about test optional uh, staying as a, as a reality, and I, I hope it does because, again, we're far too complicated as it is right now in the U.S. when it comes to admissions to our institutions, and the more we can simplify that process, allow a greater flexibility uh, for students and families, the better our chances are of continuing to enroll quality international students. So that's all we have for you today here on the Roundup. I appreciate you sticking with us today. Went a little bit long, but hopefully the content was uh, well worth the effort for you. So until next time, we wish you the very best of the week. Cheers.